Hello and welcome to Queering Desi. I'm your host, Priya. As a South Asian queer non-binary person, I have learned a lot on my journey of self-acceptance and building community. So in each episode, I will bring you a slice of South Asian LGBTQ life with a guest who exemplifies what it means to be who you are and to live your truth. I like to create a safe and open discussion with our guests and listeners. So if the topics on this podcast are controversial, please know these opinions are of the guest and host, and we don't mean any offense. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Queering Lucy listeners. This is your host, Priya. On this episode, we wanted to address the pandemic head-on. We talked to Musab Khan, a queer Muslim Pakistani physician in New York who specializes in primary care with a social justice lens. We talked to Musab about what the virus is, how it's impacting our communities, and, more importantly, how we can support one another and our healthcare workers. In the midst of so much disinformation and impact on our communities, it's important to stay informed, and we hope you find this episode helpful. For additional resources, please visit our website at www.queeringdesi.com resources. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at queeringdesi, where we are holding a series of virtual events in the coming days and weeks. Thank you all so much for your support, and remember that Queering Desi is here for you, always. So without much further ado, here's Musab. All right, welcome to Queering Desi. This week, we have an episode to address the ongoing global health crisis uh, that we're facing, and I wanted to talk to somebody who is on the front lines as a physician. So welcome, Musab. How are you? Hi, thank you for having me, Priya. I'm doing very well so far. How are you? Good, good. Um, thank you for coming on on such short notice. If you can just take a, a couple of minutes to just introduce yourself and what you do and your pronouns uh, for our listeners. Yeah, so my name is Masab Khan. Um, pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a first-year medical resident at a major hospital in New York City. Some things that I'm really passionate about are social justice, uh, reconciling my faith with my sexuality, I identify as a gay cis male, and also just thinking a lot about how structures and uh, power dynamics affect our health and uh, affect society. Thank you. Those are really deep and impactful things. And so I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this. I want to just start with the basics. Like, with coronavirus, I think people have heard about it by now and know a little bit about it. But what can you tell us kind of overall, even in just your own experience of like what you're seeing? Yeah. So, you know, I think just as a recap, so, you know, coronavirus was first discovered in China in December 2019. And I think a lot of the rhetoric around it initially in the U.S. and in the West was like, oh, here's this like disease that's, you know, come about in Asia and I think there's a lot of initial racism around that as well, um, especially regarding Asian Americans. And and then suddenly it started spreading, of course, you know, as as the way things do in this day and age to other areas of the world. So then it spread to Japan and South Korea and then made its way to Europe and now the U.S. And I think um, in the past two to three weeks, what I've seen in at least the healthcare setting is it really was sort of treated as this distant a virus. Um, and it was a very light question of whether or not, at least in New York, where I work, um, if it would be here. And I think there were some, you know, talk and rumors of possibly we may have some cases um, or not. And I think it's in the past two weeks when really, when it hit New York hard and very strongly that 
the hospital administration, a lot of the healthcare workers, a lot of my colleagues are now trying to mobilize and are realizing the severity of coronavirus where we are. And I think that um, it's the, the response to it and also the gaps we've identified in our healthcare system and in the way we're dealing with coronavirus are just very huge. What are some of the gaps that you're seeing right now? Yeah, so I think for one, um, as like a healthcare worker, we've seen a lack of personal protective equipment, which includes things like masks and gowns and gloves, hand sanitizer even. Initially, you know, the hospitals had their own stock, but then as the fear of coronavirus started spreading more than the actual virus itself in New York City, there was a lot of hoarding going on in, in the hospital. And we see this example of hoarding both in on a consumer level with people going out there and buying piles and piles of toilet paper and hand sanitizer, but also our hospital hospital stock was also being depleted because people out of very valid fears were, you know, stocking up on masks. Then when the crisis started um, hitting hard in New York City, we realized that we didn't really have enough protective equipment. And that's not only because of, you know, the initial fears and hoarding. It, we realized that the hospital systems, both in New York and nationwide, weren't actually equipped or prepared for something like this because, one, our healthcare system is so fraught with instabilities and with problems, but also because there hasn't been any effort initially to think about what this means for people living in America. And so there's a lot of struggle of do we have enough masks and equipment to possibly treat patients with coronavirus? And the answer initially was no, we didn't. There was a lot of unsafe patient interactions. A lot of people were not using protective gear because they were unable to find it in the hospital. And same thing with testing as well. So, you know, as we know, coronavirus spreads through uh, respiratory droplets. And so that's very easy to transmit. But one, a lot of healthcare workers weren't wearing protective equipment. And then when we needed to get tested, there was lack of testing as well, both for patients and for employees. So that was a very initial problem. And it's a still actually an ongoing problem. Although it has improved, um, it's still a very real problem for healthcare workers and patients. Absolutely. I mean, so many things come to mind from what you're talking about, but I do want to go back to the first thing you were talking about, about uh, like hoarding and that fear and that panic. When it comes to masks and it comes to sanitizer and these things, are there any like myths that you can help us bust? Like I've heard, obviously, there's a lot of information and disinformation out there. I understand people's fear, but I also... With my own family being in healthcare, I'm aware of the difference between masks and things like that that people may not be aware of. Is there more that you can shed light on for our listeners about things that they may not know or are accurate about what they should be wearing, how should they should be protecting themselves and not maybe depleting some of that for the healthcare workers on the front lines? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's really interesting because, you know, when we look at healthcare data and we, when we look at data about masks and preventative measures, there is a good amount of data out there. So for one, hand washing is really important and so is disinfecting surfaces. So I think one of the myths I've been hearing about a lot is I think there's this assumption that like face masks are like absolutely protective and that if you have access to a face mask, that this will significantly decrease your chances of transmitting coronavirus. And, you know, there is some truth to that. It's not to say that there is no truth. The thing is, though, that when we look at data, masks have shown to reduce transmission of a coronavirus by 33%, which is a significant number, but that number has a caveat to it. So it's not simply wearing a mask 
decreases your chances by 33%. It's if the mask is fitted to your face properly. It's also if you're making sure that you're not touching the mask as frequently. It's also making sure that the mask is clean and it's not being uh, reused a lot. It's also making sure that, you know, you're hand washing too. So I think there is this, I don't blame folks for, you know, thinking that having access to a mask is protective because I think people really want answers and sort of want to um, know the things they can do. But the data shows that there's actually a collective things that people should be doing that reduces coronavirus transmission by 70 to 90%. And it's a combination of hand washing, which is one of the most important thing, disinfecting your surfaces. So whether it's your desks, your countertops, your, your homes, things that you're often likely to be working on or working with. And then it's like masks. So I think the sort of myth is, you know, masks are here to, you know, you have to have an absolute essential access to a mask. That's not necessarily true. What you should be having essential access to is soap and hand sanitizer and making sure that your habits of uh, hygiene are you're doing your due diligence with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, going off of that, what are some things that people can do if they don't have access to some of these things, right? Like, so if if we don't have masks, we don't have, you know, sanitizer and all these things are such short supply. What are some things that people can do? You know, you mentioned hand washing. Is there anything else that people can kind of remain diligent about? I think it really is limited to those things. I think when we talk about what people can do as well, I think social distancing is a topic that's been very commonly discussed nowadays. The recommendations are that you stay outside of six feet within people outside of your home. And so I think maintaining sort of an appropriate sort of uh, protocol of how you're going to interact with folks out in the world. And then also just ensuring that you're able to you know, just maintain cleanliness and hygiene the best you can. Unfortunately, I, th- I think, you know, speaking from the at least medical standpoint, there isn't much outside of the hand washing and disinfecting services and mask wearing and social distancing that can sort of contain, um, that we know of that can contain coronavirus. I think a lot more than that, it comes to then community responsibility and also our own emotional well-being and spiritual well-being. Absolutely. I also want to go back to what you were talking about earlier about how it's spread. Again, just trying to bust myths here because there's so much conflicting information. Can you give us like a quick rundown of how what we know about it and how it's spread? Yeah. So the data shows that for every one person who has coronavirus, they can spread it to two to three people. This is more than the flu. With the flu, it's more like if one person has it, they spread it to just one other person. And so there's a higher transmission rate of what we call reproducibility factor for coronavirus. And the way that it spreads typically is through respiratory droplets. And what that means is when you cough or when you sneeze, the micro secretions that come out of your mouth or your nose, they can spread onto others or surfaces that others will can touch and then transmit to themselves. So essentially, you know, one example is if someone sneezes without covering their uh, nose, micro secretions can land on a desk. And if they're working with someone in an environment and someone's hand brushes the same area and then they touch their face or they, you know, are in contact with their own body, especially their own nose or their mouth or areas near it, they can receive the, the virus in those droplets. They've also recently isolated a coronavirus in blood and stool as well, but it's unclear if folks are able to transmit from those methods. It's mostly through coughing, sneezing um, through the air. 
Right. And so what are some symptoms that people can watch out for? Obviously, now in many countries across the world, there are protocols in place for social distancing or or people trying to stay home. So depending on where folks are, but but what are things people can look out for for their, themselves or their loved ones? I know some of these symptoms seem so similar to the flu as well. Yes, yeah. So um, coronavirus, you know, the major four symptoms are having a fever, having a cough, having shortness of breath, and having a sore throat. There are other symptoms, though, that folks should be aware of, particularly younger, healthier folks. Um, feeling nauseous is one, feeling very fatigued and tired, having abdominal discomfort, diarrhea, feeling chest tightness. And I emphasize those symptoms, particularly because younger folks are less likely to present in the classical way of fever, shortness of breath, or cough, or sore throat. Um, because we're privileged enough to be younger and for many healthier, the way that we can be asymptomatic presenting or with less symptoms. But that doesn't mean that we are not carrying the virus and that doesn't mean that we can't transmit. And so I, I do recommend that folks, you know, sort of watch out for how they're feeling. And more importantly, also, if they think that they've been in contact with someone who has coronavirus. And so those are symptoms to really look out for. And one other question personally that I was curious about is how long is this transition period, right? So some of us have have been working from home or or staying indoors as much as we can for maybe the last five to 10 days or 10 to 12 days. You know, some in the UK are just now starting to do that. How long would we say the range of like that danger period or that period is that we should be worrying about of, of when we could have caught something and still display symptoms? Yeah, so the um, coronavirus symptoms can present between two to 14 days of when you receive it. And so from what I recall, the data shows that um, when you're exposed, it's most likely that you've been, that you got it from someone within three days before you felt that you felt symptoms. But then the whole, the range that symptoms present is from two to 14 days. And the CDC recommends that people who test positive for coronavirus, they should be at least in quarantine for two weeks after symptom onset. So that's a really big range, right? You know, so for some folks, they may present with symptoms for two days right after, others are seven days, a week after, two weeks after. And then if you do somehow go test positive, then you're supposed to remain in quarantine for longer. And so I think that the range is really variable. It really depends on each individual person's body and their own health. There isn't a tight uh, range of dates that folks can present in or that puts them in or out of danger. Like the scenario I gave, it can be for up to like several weeks even. And I mean, for you, you mentioned as a cis gay male um, doing what you do in the city you're in. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences of, of how this is affecting marginalized communities or communities that are more at risk? You know, I think that's a really important discussion because I think that the initial, and this probably goes back to a little bit of myth busting too, but I think a lot of the rhetoric was like, oh, just wash your hands, you'll be okay. Like coronavirus is, you know, is preventable. But I think that that sort of rhetoric really does ignore a lot of marginalized folks. It ignores, you know, folks with chronic illnesses, uh, ignores folks who are immunocompromised, it does ignore folks who are elderly, and also folks like queer folks who rely a lot on community as a way to sustain themselves. I think one of the first thoughts I had when was when social distancing was brought about was that a lot of queer folks find families within each other. And a lot of our emotional sustainability comes from being around folks that we love, our chosen family. And I think social distancing initially did at least 
sort of put that concept into question of, you know, can I still see the folks who emotionally recharge me, who I love being around? Can I still go out to places, to community places where my queerness is celebrated? And I think, you know, at least in my experience, that has been challenged. And I think we do live in a, in a world where we have social media and we are connected through our phones, but also that the physicality of being around folks who are also queer is a really important aspect to maintain for queer folks. And I think for us, it's, it is challenging to sort of think about what it means to not be around our friends who we love or partners that we love um, or our chosen families. I think even more than queer folks, though, I think for disabled folks, this is a, a big thing as well. We talk a lot about the ableism around how people are able to now work from home and why wasn't that a policy that was ever explored for folks who needed that, especially our disabled friends and family um, and the pressures that were put on them to show up physically for work, even though they had a lot of health uh, barriers to that. I think for poor folks, for folks who are, who rely on um day-to-day, you know, working or they live paycheck to paycheck, you know, not having to go out to work or being told that they can't come in threatens their livelihoods. There's a lot of marginalized folks I think are affected. For mental health-wise, I think it's hard. You know, I think about queer folks who have to quarantine or, or social distancing with families who may be homophobic or transphobic or queerphobic and what that looks like for them. I think this, you know, more than the virus itself, perhaps, but the way that the community... And the way that society has been responding to it has really shown the way that folks are struggling with dealing with safe measures and to prevent transmission, but then also how this brings up very um, charged and triggering experiences for them. Absolutely. I think that's one of the toughest things to kind of see in this community now. I think for queer folks, I'll I'll speak for myself, but I've always found the community and the chosen family you speak of to be like that lifeline and, and to not be bound by just physicality and all these things, but to rely solely on internet or social media. It's strange for all of us, and it, and it feels even harder to not be able to reach out and help community members and folks. And so some of it has been also really uplifting to see queer and trans communities, indigenous and black communities and POC communities to come together and and do mutual aid funds and drives and, and fundraising for low-income folks, for workers who may have been laid off. So it's kind of nice to see that kind of rally around. Rima, you're the Bonnie to my Buri. What? That sounds like something that should be on a t-shirt. It is. From Bukwas Apparel. Have you ever wished you had a brand that embraced your multicultural identity, deconstructed stigmas, and helped you pursue your passions? Oh yeah, for sure. Well, Bukwas is a brand motivated by people who are doing what makes them happy, and they understand what it means to be who you are, and what it takes to be true to yourself. Something we believe in deeply here at Queering Desi. Aww, PR. Yeah, they have that on a t-shirt too. Inspired by this generation of go-getters, innovators, disruptors, and dreamers, Bakwas wants you to join the movement and proudly wear your identity for the world to see. Check out their premium South Asian designs on their website, www.bakwasapparel.com, and use the code MK15 for an exclusive 15% discount just for you, our listeners. Join the movement. Be Bakwas. And baby, you're the Pani to my Puri too. (laughs) Okay, back to the show. 
for you, though, like, and something that maybe you can speak to is how can people, folks take care of themselves? Like, you know, we're home now. Uh, we may not be in safe situations. We may be dealing with other mental health issues on top of everything. What are some things in your experience that, that can help or, or things that you've been exploring even for yourself? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, the biggest uh, struggles I've had was actually setting boundaries. So for folks who are struggling and need to maintain their own sense of peace in a time like this, I really think it's important to at least be able to identify, you know, how can we manage our support systems in a time like this? And I think this is, you know, like we mentioned, this is where checking in with folks is super important. So I think, you know, checking in and asking, you know, friends, and they don't even have to be friends, just acquaintances, people that you know, how are you doing? Is there anything that's bothering you? And just talking to folks. I think, you know, a lot of um, our emotional um, recharging and our, our sustainability is maintained by just having people care for us. And while we can't necessarily do that as much physically or in person, we can at least do that um, in, with the means that we have. And so I think, you know, oftentimes our colleagues and I, working in the hospital, we are regularly checking in with each other. Uh, I'm regularly checking in with my partner as well and just trying to maintain that. It's really nice to sort of sometimes come home and, and open up my phone to text messages or messages of like, hey, just thinking of you today, hope you're doing well. I think those little things, I don't discount those, especially now, and really value those. I also think that um, getting involved in community initiatives, like you mentioned, mutual aid and rallying around efforts to help the marginalized folks is really important as well, because this pandemic highlights the need of for community and also highlights the fact that we are all in this together and we support, we only do as well as we can support each other. And so that the more that we're there for each other and showing up for each other, the better we'll do and the more healthy we'll be. And I think those are some ways that we can sort of protect ourselves and also be able to address the pandemic in a way that's healthy. And I mean, for you as, as someone on the front lines, like how are you taking care of yourself? So a lot, there's been a lot in the hospital uh, amongst my so my co-residents and I about organizing. Um, we have an amazing cohort of colleagues who are really frustrated actually by our um, the hospital response and the state response and the government response. And a lot of my energies in taking care of myself has been to build a community with my colleagues and ensuring within that community that we're able to address patient care needs, our needs, and also take care of each other. More than that, though, I think by I'm taking care of myself really by coming home. My partner and I are actually for this period uh, living together. And I think having him around has been such a source of emotional support and strength as well. And again, like simple things as like baking cookies, like we did that the other day. Um, he just uh, engaged in Instagram live Bangladesh class. I think realizing that like there are little things that we can do and things that, and distractibility is important. I think to be able to distract ourselves from this is super important as well, because there's so much news out there. There's so much, like a lot of the headlines that we have nowadays are just confusing and, and anxiety driven. And I think being able to unplug and then just engaging in the daily things that make us human is one way that I'm able to take care of myself, baking cookies, going for a hike, um, being able to sort of light a candle. I think for me, those little things have played a big part in my own sanity. Yeah, absolutely. As as someone who works in news, this has been a really 
really trying time for me as well. And I think it's really helped to put that into Queering Daisy and put that work into like uplifting folks that are doing all this work around the world and trying to create a collaborative community space online. And it helps distract from that also. But it also reminds me that like there's more than just the news because I'm I'm like so much more in it and plugged in when I'm working. And to kind of come out of that, it can be jarring as well, but it can also be such a relief to say like, oh, I can just like watch something funny or I can like stream a f- movie with my friends or we can have like a 10 minute dance party on Zoom or like whatever it is. And, and in these weird times, like find other ways than just like Netflix and chill to like actually to unleash and to do something else. So I really relate to the distractibility that you're talking talking about. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, there was some talk about like, initially, it's like, oh, we're in self-quarantine or social distancing. And now we can be as productive members of society as we want. We can produce like our next novel or next greatest artwork. And I think even that narrative is dangerous, too, because it does feed into this like capitalist notion of no matter where we are, we should always be producing and um, extracting our own labor for some value. And I think this is an important moment to be like, no, I'm going to step back and I'm going to take care of my emotional and spiritual health. And I'm going to engage with my community and those that I love in the way that um, allows me to be rest, to rest and relax and to be able to just be and exist without the pressures of having to produce or without the pressures of other things that normally we're bogged down by in our daily lives. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. You know, when when this first started happening, at least in New York um, and in the U.S., a couple of weeks ago, I saw so much about that. And I saw so much also about, like, not only being productive, but like, oh, I have all this free time now. Like, I'm going to watch movies and read these books and all the things that I could never do because I never had time. And I almost felt guilty at first because I had to continue to initially go to the office still, but I'm still working from home. I mean, I'm, I'm privileged enough to still have a job in this situation, but it wasn't a time for me to just sit back and like kick back and relax either. And there are still folks that are healthcare workers, of course, but, you know, so many people at at grocery stores, our delivery people are, you know, there's restaurants that have still managed to stay open with delivery and takeout here. There's so many people like on across so many fronts in it that are still working, whether that's remotely or not. And so I thought this idea of like, oh, now I'm going to do like the, all the movies and all the things that I can. I, I, you know, I felt guilty because I was like, I'm not going to have a time to do that. Like, I don't get to unplug or stop doing what I'm doing just because I'm at home. So I almost felt guilty about that at first. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's real. And I think it does speak to the fact that there, there are some folks out there who sort of generalize their own experience or their own desires for others. And it's like, that's not the case. You know, the other folks are out there who still, like you said, you have to be at work or work from home or be out there on the front lines. Yeah, absolutely. Just to wrap up, like I wanted to ask you if there's anything from your perspective that that the community can do to help support folks like yourself, um, healthcare workers on the front lines, or nurses, and, and beyond even the medical system, all the people that are still working and out there. Like, what can we do for you as as a healthcare worker, as a community, and, and what can we kind of do collectively for everyone? You know, I think beginning with like just checking in with folks and offering that emotional support, I can speak firsthand and I see this in my colleagues and the nurses. A lot of us walking to work with a high level of anxiety, not knowing what to expect, not necessarily knowing if the hospital has our back or not. And I think that's emotionally draining. And I think um, just being able to offer emotional support in whatever capacity folks are able to offer and is really important and will go a long way. We know that, you know, I think there's an understanding amongst healthcare workers that we know that we our bodies will be out there regardless, but it's just a matter of 
are we able to find our support networks and folks who can value us and make sure that we're doing okay, even outside of work? Um, you know, this is something that came up today, at least amongst our co-residents, but folks have been getting very creative in um, figuring out how to supply masks to hospitals. And I think there's been a talk, at least with the governor, Andrew Cuomo, reaching out to like fashion designers about creating masks or sewing masks. I think if folks out there have any access, and this is actually a very real question, but if they have any access to people who either produce masks or can make masks, I think relaying that information to any healthcare worker that you know, healthcare workers are passing that information along to their own hospital administration because the hospitals at this point are willing to make contracts or deals with folks out there who can just supply masks um, in a way that um, can cover the shortage that we're facing. Going back to the emotional check-in, I think that is so valid for everybody, and I hope that we can continue to do that for each other. But yeah, in terms of supplies, like for us in New York, I feel like there's all this talk about, you know, it's going to get worse before it's better. And I think a lot of people don't know what to expect, but whatever we can do to help manage the anxiety and the uncertainty, I think in a weird like almost messed up way that's kind of what unites us, no matter what our situation is or, or what we're going through, that we all kind of also don't know what to expect and what's coming, but also none of us do. And so there isn't, there, it's almost all normalized and all equalized because we're in this together. Yeah. And I, and I think like, you know, going back to what you were saying, I think a lot of like not knowing what's to come next continues to like generate a lot of fear and a lot of also a lot of solidarity as well. And then also continues to generate some more myths. I think, you know, projections, at least mathematical projections show that in New York state, at least the peak of the coronavirus crisis is going to be in 45 days to six weeks. And so we're still, you know, we're not even there yet. And that's still coming. And I think, you know, there are other things and I don't really blame folks for trying to navigate the uncertainty as best they can, but I just hope that folks can stay safe um, and try to really like practice good practices in um, maintaining hygiene and social distancing. And uh, if they're very concerned that they have coronavirus or if they've been exposed to um, call or uh, get in contact with their primary care doctor or someone and have that discussion with them. That's all the questions I had for you, Masab. Is there anything else that we didn't touch upon? Any final words for our listeners? Yeah, I think um, just like there's a couple of things I, I wanted to stress because I've been seeing this a little bit more too. I think this may go back to um, the concept of myths, but I think there's this idea that perhaps younger, that like children cannot get coronavirus or that younger folks may not get the virus or transmit the virus. And I do want to stress that that, you know, for a lot of our listeners out there who may be on the younger side, that's not true. Actually, in the past day or two, a study came out of China that looked at coronavirus in children and it found that 12% of the 1,000 children that they had studied were positive for coronavirus. And for a lot of young folks, we, even if we might not feel it or might just be feeling a little bit of symptoms, we are uh, able to transmit the virus um, just as much as anyone else. When they looked at how South Korea did and how Italy did with the virus, we know that Italy had a very, very difficult time with the virus. And that was because their elderly got uh, affected the most and that overwhelmed their healthcare system. But with South Korea, the largest age group that actually carried the virus and was transmitting the virus were 20 to 29 year olds. 
And so I do want to stress that, you know, it's a myth that there's certain age groups that get it more than others and certain age groups that are protected. We're pretty much all likely to get it no matter how old we are. And this touches upon something I've heard very rarely, but I've heard it from a couple of people. If you can dispel this myth as well while we're on that subject is from young people, I've heard as a little bit of a sense of now before social distancing to give them credit. But the sense of like, oh, well, it's okay if I get it and I don't have really bad symptoms and I get over it, then I'll be fine. At least I'm immune. Can you talk a little bit about the risk of that kind of outlook? Yeah. So for one, um, we don't actually know if there's immunity to coronavirus. Um, we had a talk about this recently in our hospital. It's too early to tell. The understanding is that people can get immune based on how people responded to the original SARS way back when, but we can't tell. And then there have been some reports of reinfection in Japan. So we're not sure. The second thing is it's not, again, about us getting it and getting over it. It's about us getting it and then transmitting it to folks out there who are more vulnerable and then tipping them over the edge with their illnesses. So, and I think initially this perhaps was a way to cope with the very real idea that everyone can get coronavirus. It's like, well, it's okay if I get it because I'll just get over it. But I think, you know, while that can be a coping mechanism on its own, that doesn't address the fact that having it can mean that other people can get it. Remember, I said when one person gets coronavirus, they are likely to transmit it to three other folks. And that could be your entire family, even if you're not, you know, even if you're just feeling a little bit of sick. That could mean your mother, your father, that could mean anyone in the in the home or your partner who's living with you. Thank you. That's very helpful. I think some of these myths, um, obviously many will continue to persist and, and kind of grow, but as much as we can kind of try to give folks where the research is at and where the data is at and, and your perspective as, as a medical professional, um, I hope that we can do a little bit in, in dispelling some of these fears for people. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, likewise. Um, as a parting thing, can you give folks a place to turn to if they want information or any kind of reliable information for non-medical professionals where they can turn to get the most up-to-date status or things about coronavirus? Yeah, I think uh, one is definitely the CDC website. That's really important. They can also check out the Department of Health's website um, for folks in New York or their state Department of Health. I really like this Instagram account, Health Justice Commons. They do a lot with disability and the rhetoric around, you know, folks, community work, mutual aid work, and also addressing the needs of marginalized folks. I think that's a really good resource for folks to check, look into as well. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Masab. I really appreciate your time. And I hope you're able to stay safe and take care of yourself. Uh, we really appreciate all that you and your team are doing. I do, as someone who who has family in the healthcare field, like I definitely know what it takes. And at a time like this, we just appreciate what you do. So so thank you. And I, I hope you can take good care of yourself. Thank you, Priya. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Queering Daisy. If you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes to help us spread the word and to make sure you get the latest episodes right to your phone. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Queering Daisy. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please feel free to reach us on social media or drop us an email at queeringdaisy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.